right, hello and welcome to another episode of Raven Conversations, the show where we bring you the news and information from around the Washington National Guard and the Washington Military Department. I'm Jason Kreis. This episode is going to be a special one. It's May, and in Washington, that can only mean one thing. No, I'm not talking about when British Captain George Vancouver first laid his eyes upon and named Mount Rainier on May 8th of 1792. No, I'm not talking about May 7th, 1945, when plutonium from the Hanford site was used in the world's first test of a nuclear bomb in New Mexico. And no, I'm not talking about the Seattle World's Fair that was well underway in May of 1962. No, I am talking about what is likely the first thing that will come to your mind when we use Washington and volcano in the same sentence. Yes, I am talking about that fateful day in 1980 when a 5.1 magnitude earthquake underneath Mount St. Helens triggered a catastrophic stream of events that resulted in one of the most deadliest volcanic events in U.S. history. Just listen to some of these statistics. 57 people were killed. The blast was heard up to 700 miles away. The debris from the avalanche traveled at speeds of up to 300 miles per hour. Volcanic materials formed a column that reached 80,000 feet into the atmosphere. Ash from the eruption was deposited in 11 U.S. states. 24 square miles of devastation from the lateral blast and subsequent lahars leveled forests, flooded rivers, and destroyed homes. The thermal blast, the thermal energy that was released in the blast was equal to 26 megatons of TNT. Now, any normal person would hear all that and say to themselves, I don't want to be anywhere near that. No, thank you. That sounds like too much death and destruction for me. But my guest today is no normal person. He's a helicopter pilot. And he flew for the Washington National Guard at that. But he's retired now. And he graciously came to our office studio to tell us about how he heroically flew towards death and destruction, towards uncertainty, and helped rescue people who were trapped and stranded. Mike Cairns, thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's good to have you. You're welcome. Um, first, let me get a little introduction, a little background of uh, your career, where you grew up, how you got to, got into flying. Back in 1967, I was in college and surfing in California and having a having a great time. And wow. and uh, my uncle gave me a call, Sam, and told me that uh, my uh, one Y was not good enough and I was drafted at the time. My father was a Navy pilot. He was uh, uh, flying fighters mm -hmm. and they would not, he didn't want me to go into the military uh, on the ground. He said, why don't you take the test for flight school, go to flight school and you know get something beneficial for you mm -hmm. since you're going in anyway. So I, I took all the tests, I uh, qualified. They sent me to, to uh, Fort Walters, Texas, where I went through primary. After primary, I went to Fort Rucker, Alabama. There's a Karen's Army airfield there. Oh, wow. And, uh, and that's where I got my, uh, uh, that's where I got my wings. 
I was a class leader of class 68513. And um, upon graduation, uh, we had about 125 guys in the class. And all except for five of, of them, us went to, uh, went to Vietnam. I, I was sent to Europe to, to a uh, VIP flight detachment mm -hmm. to fly generals around as a W-1 way back then, um, many years ago, yeah. because my dad was flying in Vietnam and they wouldn't send two members of the same family at the same time. Mm. So when he received orders to come back to the States, I received orders to go to Vietnam via Cobra School. So I went through H1G Cobra School in, mm -hmm. in uh, Savannah, Georgia, in Georgia. And um, after that, I had a 30-day leave and went straight to Vietnam. I was with the first all-gun company, all-Cobra company in Vietnam. It was the 235th Armed Helicopter Company out of Canto. And we had five, six different basic missions. I flew mm -hmm. my tour there, had some real exciting events. I'll bet. I'll bet. I'll never forget. Came back to the States and had uh, a couple years left. Um, I was a W-2 at the time. Mm -hmm. And they sent me to Fort Hood, Texas. And in Texas, I was uh, given a direct commission. They wanted me to become an RLO. So... I, was, I took what's a, a what's an RLO? real life officer instead of, <laughs> instead of a warrant officer. <laughs> so I took a direct commission uh, to first lieutenant, made it up through captain, became a company commander. But I spent mm. most of my time doing uh, mid-intensity warfare testing for uh, for Europe in Cobras. We had a, a site called the Stabilized Night Site, which became the actual night vision stuff that they're using today mm. and we were testing that in 1972 wow I did uh, the one quick last thing about that but we um, we also had a uh, an opportunity to go up against F4s out of Point Magoo so they sent three of us from my uh, gun company in, at, at Fort Hood up to up to Hunter Liggett in, in Northern California well Central California mm -hmm. on the coast and uh we had an opportunity to fly against F-4s out of Point Magoo, which is in California, testing uh, weapon systems like red air missiles. And we actually did real well against nice. the Navy. <laughs> nice. And what what brought you to the to Washington and the National Guard here? Well, I went into, I was in the reserves in okay. California. And I took a, uh, I was offered a position with a, a clothing company, Lee Jeans, mm -hmm. in Oregon. I was out of the service at that time. So I moved to Oregon, and my territory for selling blue jeans was mm -hmm. state of Oregon, and I joined the Oregon National Guard. Did my time there. Uh, Levi Strauss hired me and wanted me to take over the major stores in the Northwest. So I moved up to Bellevue, Washington, and I moved there in... Uh, December of 79 in uh, late February of 80 mm -hmm. just a few months later I joined the Washington National Guard at uh, um, here at Fort Lewis at mm -hmm. the time it was Fort Lewis and it was the uh, uh, 116th attack helicopter troop 
Okay. And I joined them as a W-2. They wanted me to revert back and start moving up the up the ranks again. So I took my I took my um, rank back as a captain and started flying. My first flights were in early March of 1980, mm -hmm. just before the eruption. Wow. That was kind of my progression. Okay. So, Very cool. So um, you were flying Cobras, you said, at that time? Or we had initially we in the National Guard? Yeah. In the we had uh, a UH-1M, a Mike model, Huey, and we had some H models. We had a couple of 58s. Uh, I know you've talked with Jess Hagerman. He mm, yeah, he was he was the 58 pilot, yeah, right? Yeah. He was a scout pilot. Yeah. yeah. And in the Marine Corps, he flew what we would call in the Army a CH-34. Mm. So, but he flew 58s. Uh, he was also flying for where Weyerhaeuser at the time. Mm -hmm. And that was the same aircraft he flew for them, a jet ranger. Okay. So um, the unit up here, we had uh, three gun platoons, and each gun platoon uh, had Mike model uh, Hueys at the time. And I think it was uh, 83, much after, quite a bit after St. Helens, mm -hmm. we got an S model Cobras. There were only four of us in the unit. Uh, Hal Cold, you know, Hal, and um, Tim Locke, Chuck Knoll, and myself were the only four pilots that flew Cobras in Vietnam. Okay. okay. So we went to went to transition school first. Okay. That's how we got the Cobras. Okay. Well, um, I have an interesting photo here. And uh, I think we'll kick it off by okay. letting, you, letting you look at the photo, sure. and then we'll uh, let it jog your jog your memories. <laughs> so you, you forty three old memory. <laughs> so you know this photo. So um, for for the folks listening on um, via audio, it is a, a sunny day, beautiful, pristine picture of Mount Rainier. I believe that is correct. Okay, and then there's three helicopters in front of it. Okay, and and the interesting thing about this photo is that it is dated May 17th, Correct. 1980. May 17th, 1980, uh, my attack helicopter troop went to summer camp. We were headed to Yakima. We had four gunships in our platoon. And um, I don't know if you want all the names of the guys that were flying, but... Uh, no. Okay, so we were flying over to Yakima first thing in the morning. That's the south side of Mount Rainier. Mm -hmm. And we're in a staggered trail formation. And we had one of the aircraft with the guy who took the photograph, a, a warrant by the name of Earl Cook. He flew out to the side of us and snapped that just as we were flying by the uh, mountain. Mm -hmm. And the skies were perfectly clear. You can see a few yeah. low clouds right there. Um, but that was the day before the uh, the mountain blew its top. And uh, I think it's cool to say uh, you can't really make it out in this this 40-some-year-old photograph, but the gun tubes are designed in a specific way on two of these helicopters. What what, what, are they, what do they look like? <laughs> this is in the old National Guard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Today, it's changed quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, we had uh, our, our rocket. Those are rocket pods. Okay. And they're... 
They're 14 shot pods that were on the side of the aircraft. And all of them were painted like beer cans. We had a Budweiser beer can and we had a Rainier beer can. And that's <laughs> what the rocket pods looked like. And whenever we had visitors uh, come and see us, we'd drop those pods and put, <laughs> Cover them up put, or... the, put the other ones back on. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's, that's, that's pretty neat. Uh, neat little bit of trivia there. Um, so yeah, so you guys got to Yakima and then uh, woke up in the morning and something was, was just different. That evening we just, we did our regular routine, just got settled in and mm -hmm. we, you know, you train 14 days straight, you don't have any time off. You have maybe a day off or two right. in between, but so on Saturday night we all just kind of got our gear in order and got ready for the briefing the next morning at eight o'clock. Mm -hmm. So we went over into the operations facility that we set up for the, for the summer camp at uh, 8 o'clock on May 18th, the morning of. We were sitting, getting our preparation done for going out and firing rockets and 40 millimeter and minigun on the range. And we were discussing how we would, you know, fly and what we were going to do. The, uh, at a little after, I think it was probably not more than a minute after the mountain had blown its top, so it was maybe around, remember this is 43 years ago, so I'm going to yeah, no. be <laughs> off a little bit of the time, but the uh, we started getting phone calls. The phone started ringing off the hook in operations, and they put the briefing on hold, answered the phone, and uh, said, hey guys, the mountain's blown its top. You got to get your gear and get out of here. Somebody had said that they told us to hunker down, but they didn't. They said, mm -hmm. try and get the aircraft out of here because we're going to need to use them. So we ran. We Actually, the first thing we did is we walked outside on the western side of the building, looking to the west, and the entire sky from the south all the way around to, if you'd say like from a 6 o'clock to about a 10 o'clock position, that wow. the, yeah and that's within a couple minutes within 10 minutes wow that the sky was completely black and it was moving towards us there was uh lots of lightning on the leading edge and we didn't feel anything coming down but we saw it coming at us and, and there was so much static electricity in the clouds that they were they were just lighting up and they were, at that time, I'd say maybe not, no more than 10,000 feet high mm -hmm. at that, that point, based on just, you know, judging um, AGL on, on, the, on the clouds. We got our gear, got to the aircraft, and I was in the first attack platoon. So we wanted to get all of us off at the same time. And as we, we got our gear in and we just said, let's go, you know, we took off. Uh, from our position where they where the aircraft were setting and um, as we're taking off where we heard all this pinging on the aircraft because the cloud was starting to pass over mm -hmm. us and we were getting debris from the from the ash cloud hitting the aircraft but we got up and out of the uh, area fast enough so we actually outran the cloud at that point mm -hmm. Flew north to Ellensburg, west to Seattle, south down to Fort Lewis, and mm -hmm. refueled. 
got orders to head down to Toledo and to Kelso. I went to Kelso. Okay. Wow. So um, were those areas at all being inundated with debris? Kelso, yeah. not, not, not yet? No, the, the only debris they, they got was okay. the, uh, um, the mud flow. Mm. They got all the timber coming down yeah. and being stripped out of the logging camps. Wow, that's... But there was no there was no ash there. Everything was going... It was a, kind of a, like a pie shape. The blast zone was... Uh, went mainly to about... About 015, 010, 015 degrees past north. And to 235 degrees south was the blast zone. Mm -hmm. But all the ash went, you know, almost directly... No, due east northeast because of the prevailing wind okay and the way it came out okay um when you got to kelso did you think that you were gonna get i mean what time is this what let me guess an hour later maybe longer or? you mean after we left yakima yeah oh probably three three three, three hours or so okay. four hours did we you had to fly back to seattle first okay but then, and then you refueled. Then we refueled and went and then down. Went to Kelso. We stayed. Yeah. At Kelso. And did you go? Did you go into the area that day? Yes. Did um, you think when you landed in Kelso that you were going to go in that day? Did you think we knew you wanted to wait a little while longer? But uh, anyways, go ahead. No, that, no, good, good question because it helps me recall. Yeah. <laughs> we knew that it was going to be dangerous mm -hmm. and weird and different flying mainly because we had no idea how far to the east we'd be able to get with that with that cloud with a big cloud and all the stuff coming out of it mm -hmm. so we were given a briefing and we were we you had to volunteer they could not require you to fly into a blast zone mm -hmm. so everyone volunteered no yeah. one back down I would imagine yeah. yeah these are some of the best I mean this I've is what it's what we do right in yeah. the National Guard it's <laughs> oh the National Guard I this was National Guard yeah. responded wonderfully to this uh, event yeah so we were given basically four major sectors to search north of the volcano the North Fork and South Fork of the Tootle River and a little bit south, and that's quite a few miles in between that. That's maybe a 20, 25 mile run. And I went up the North Fork of the River on the on the first uh, mission that mm -hmm. I had. So we flew in, in uh, we started off in pairs, then we split off and we're flying single ship. And looking for anything we could find. Okay. The, the problem that we, Con concerned us the most was on a turbine engine you've got your your intake and you have a you do have a filter in there basically mm -hmm. just layman's terms <clears throat> right and that filter is to you know clear debris from getting into the the p102 power turbines. can imagine that filter is working overtime <laughs> it's working overtime there's uh, there's we had stuff hitting our aircraft all day long yeah um, we saw, we could see chunks of things going up over us. The visibility out by Kelso and Toledo 
was, you know, about a mile. Then as you got in within 10 miles, I'm guessing now, I don't remember, sure. about 10 miles of the mountain, uh, there was a visibility drop down to, you know, 200 feet in elevation, if that at times, and maybe a half mile, quarter mile, if we were lucky. So, and with everything blown down, it looked, we couldn't, we couldn't follow a map real well because the river was being washed out. The, all of the, all of the timber had been shaken loose, knocked over, root balls out, bark gone, branches, leaves gone, roads covered, mm -hmm. and ash going over us all the time. So everything was gray. And there were steam vents from just about a mile, I don't know, about a, I think a mile um, west of Spir where Spirit, we thought Spirit Lake was. <laughs> we had steam vents, all pockets of them, all over the place. So there's a lot going on, poor visibility. It was 120 plus in the aircraft, wow. smelled of sulfur and debris going <clears throat> over us and, and everything's gray. So initially nobody was finding anything. Mm -hmm. The guys in my, in my unit that were flying um, over the kind of the western part that's, you know, 15 miles from the mountain, Mm -hmm. They were finding people in homes and, and others that were, you know, kind of trapped where they were. But it wasn't, they weren't in a blast zone. There was no, the cloud was not over the top of them. It was just cloudy because the eruption, I, mm -hmm. I'm sure, changed the skyline that day. So they, they were pulling out people that were uh, stranded and trapped. And they pulled out well over 100 people, I think. And these are people that are further away, but still within yeah. the danger. Correct. Okay. But the mud flows were, yeah. we flew down on the second mud flow on the uh, Toodle River and said it was going 45 miles an hour. Wow. And there's 100 foot logs that are churning and popping out of it. Look like. Yeah, I, uh, you know, in doing research for the video I did several years ago and, and every May, whenever this comes up, you know, I, uh, always go through the archives and watch, you know, some, some of the B-roll that, that came out of there. And it's just mind blowing how, how much destruction and devastation there was. So yeah, it's a quite, quite the picture. And you were like in it. <laughs> so you were like in it yeah. above it, you know, and it's just, it's just fascinating. Um, let me, um, move on to another picture and, um, well, first of all, uh, if anybody wants to see these pictures, we'll um, put them on our Instagram page. So go ahead and head there, and we'll have those uploaded um, uploaded there. And give us a follow while you're there. <laughs> um, this picture is the uh, uh, Huey, right? Huey. It's a Mike model Huey. Mike Gunship. model. Okay. The rocket pods are popped off, so we didn't. <clears throat> you had to like, get, take... get, get rid of them, so we had more, yeah, less weight and more more space. Oh yeah, yeah, um, and it is it is landed. It's shut down, and there's a um, I don't know if that's a pilot or a crew chief. Yeah, he's uh, he's wiping off the windows, which looks like there is a ton of ash all over this this helicopter. It's it's coated in ash. Anybody who made a landing in anywhere near the ash, um, 
the aircraft was completely covered by the time you got on the ground. Because it's and kicking, this, this is not, water washes kicking up dust correct. and getting all over the yeah, and you can't even can't even see. No, you can't see. How yeah. how do you land in something like that? Like like how do you <laughs> how do you navigate the, the your your surroundings? Like just just like inch by inch moving slow, or or, or I think <laughs> I truly I think it's. Uh, I think it's experience and uh, guys that have flown in difficult situations anticipate what we're going to see. Mm -hmm. And you know, well, we could tell just flying through the the areas every time we were within 100 feet of the ground, it was still kicking up ash at 100 feet. Mm -hmm. So we knew that if you got into deep ash, which I did, it was going to completely encompass the aircraft. And when you made made an approach to an area like this, you were still going to get, you know, a lot of ash blocking your view. So what you do is you pick a point on the ground, you know the attitude of the aircraft, you know what your rate of descent is, you know what your elevation is. So you have to kind of put all of that together and say, okay, yeah. I'll check my chin bubble and before I crash, <laughs> I'm going to pull a little pitch and, and uh, set it down. And that's mm -hmm. how you got down. Wow. So you, so you credit service in Vietnam with all these different scenarios to help you navigate stuff like this or something like this? Or I know it's a it's very different scenario, but uh, I can imagine. I, I think an advantage maybe that I had a, a little bit is that uh, flying in Germany, I flew in the snow. Oh, yeah. So I've landed in not a whiteout condition, but I've landed with, you know, Poor visibility except through the chin bubble mm -hmm. before so that for me that's what helped me the other guys i think it's just skill as well and for those who don't know chin bubble is likely that uh, little plexiglass at your feet where mm -hmm. you can look down at the ground yeah. yeah the reason for that is in vietnam when you're landing an aircraft or making an approach especially for uh, what we call slick drivers to transport aircraft and you're getting close to the ground and you've got elephant grass or something underneath mm -hmm. you you want to be able to see what's there in between your feet because you don't want to set on something that's going to tip the aircraft over or yeah. cause a problem. So, yeah, these conditions were just unbelievably. Yeah, seeing seeing uh, something like this is just a, a photo of um, just a, a big field of trees that are just lying on the ground. Uh, it just tells you just the, the, the force of that it just swept through the area, knocking everything in its path and, onto the ground. And this is after the eruption. Yeah. This is not the day of. Right. And it looks, it kind of looks like a beard on a guy. That's what we all thought. Okay. But the, the interesting aspect to me is the fact that there's nothing left on these trees. Oh, yeah. No bark They're branches, bare. Nothing. Yeah. They're bare. And these are. These are 100-foot trees, most of them, you know, three feet in diameter. Mm -hmm. And uh, this looked like pickup sticks. Yeah, yeah. So here's a photo, and remind me of this this uh, model. That's a OH-15. Okay, so that's Jess. That's Jess Hager. You did tell me that the other last week, Jess. Yeah, right. so it's landed in what is a very, very dusty area with a pickup truck very you know ashy ashy yeah and <laughs> then, and dust. then uh it looks like the it's shut down or um, 
Uh, or maybe yeah, it's... no, no, he shut it down. Okay. Yeah, it. yeah, you can't. Yeah, there's no wash or anything. Um, so yeah, so and then there's Jess standing looking at the truck. He's taking a. He got a license plate number, and there's two bodies inside. Yeah. They were viewing. So the the truck is facing to the. I, I know, we were over it. We took the photo. This um, is your helicopter, the, the oh, vantage uh, point. Yes. From this on, picture, on okay. top taking the picture. Uh, he went in small aircraft doesn't kick up as much ash right. and uh, and he was taking getting the license plate number which was primary but they were facing the mountain and they were about six seven miles out wow and they were completely you know, yeah mummified basically mm-hmm. um you can imagine you guys came across a lot of scenes like this yeah we did yeah um that's Ah, this is another good there's, picture. I there's love Hal Cole. Yeah, Hal is uh, is on, uh, outside of his uh, helicopter in, in a dusty, dusty uh, landscape, and um, standing with a, a a gentleman who is in overalls and is completely black soot all over his face and hands. Hal, and so is Hal too, almost. <laughs> yeah, Hal made one of the landings like I did, where you're completely. I rem- yeah. In in. You know, surrounded by the ash going into the ground. I don't know who this gentleman is. I pulled a guy out that is almost looked like him, about the same age, just completely covered with ash because they were, they were, really at the edges of the blast zone. Mm-hmm. They would not have survived in the blast zone. Right. But outside it, you could survive outside of about ten, twelve miles. You, you, unless the Ash cloud encompassed you. Mm-hmm. And Hal's no longer with us. Yes. Rest in peace, Hal. I, I interviewed him several years ago for that video. And I remember him talking very much the same, uh, what you're telling me now about okay. just navigating and, and just complete. We didn't have blind. GPS. No, no. <laughs> no satellites, no GPS. But he did tell me something interesting. I think I brought it up with you last week when you visited us. Um, that that they were getting imagery from satellites of actual license plates of vehicles that are just like stranded somewhere. At, after the sky after, cleared. After yeah yes. yeah after it was cleared. Not 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 the day up. No. Yeah yeah. But uh, that just stuck with me because I was like, wow, you can make out license plates from a satellite. That's just you know, turn off the bathroom lights when you have to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anybody looking at? <laughs> all right, uh, all right. So I think we could go into the story that really is is just pretty incredible. Um, her name is Sue, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. And this is a picture um, inside of a helicopter, a young young lady, uh, and the, the pilot, um, and the pilot seat. And um, that's basically it. She's, she doesn't look like she's just getting situated in the back of the helicopter. Can you tell me about about Sue? Yeah, that's the pilot is me. Uh, that's Sue. Was it Nelson or Ruff first? I don't remember. I think it's Sue Ruff. Yeah, Sue Ruff. And then she became Sue, she married Bruce Nelson. That's right. Okay. The guy she was with. She and Bruce the, Nelson. The, you also picked up, right? Yes, Bruce picked okay. him up too. She and Bruce Nelson and two other gentlemen were at a campground on Green River, 18 miles 
18. from the mountain. Okay. It's on the extreme north side of the mountain. And the Green River runs, you know, all throughout that area on the further north side. They were camping and it was beautiful that morning. They heard the, this is from Sue to me. They heard the rush of the wind after the blast. They did not hear the blast. Hmm. They didn't hear it. That, that shocked me. The, but they heard the wind coming. Then they saw the sky darken. And she said almost instantaneously, trees started coming down and it encompassed them. They do dove into their tent and Terry Crawl and his Karen Varner got into her tent, their tent, and they had their dogs with them. And the trees came down and, and crushed and killed mm -hmm. Karen and Terry. Uh, and we didn't know it at the time, but it actually pinned a dog that lived. And we got the dog out on the following Thursday. Oh, man. But they, um, when they were able to get out of the, the tent because the ash settled to some degree, it was still completely over them, but they had visibility. They started hiking out and they hiked from, well, they took oh, the other two guys, one had a fractured hip and he was taken to a little, um, it was a fishing shack or camp, mm -hmm. not too far from there and they, said we can't carry you and get out of here we'll come back for you this is sue telling me so you know i wasn't part of any of that mm -hmm. but they uh left the other two guys at the camp one with the fractured hip and i'm not sure what happened to the other one i don't really know he wasn't wasn't killed I, he was burned mm. bad so i think that's why he stayed at the camp and then sue and bruce started hiking out with one of the dogs at late in the afternoon we were and they were going up and under timber that's down they're crawling under mm -hmm. you know stacks of trees that are 25 30 wow. feet high and going through ash that's up to your shin and the ash is hot and it's not ash has not cooled down and they hiked through that for I'm guessing about seven hours. And I, I don't know how many miles it was from their camp to where we found them, but we were getting ready to quit for the day because it was starting to, go ahead. This is the first day. First day, yeah. day one. It was starting to get dark. Mm -hmm. So we were just, we said, hey, we've been following these tracks. We can't find the people. So that's how you yeah. located them as you saw their tracks in the well, we saw the tracks, but then we lost the tracks. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know if more ash, I don't know why we lost the tracks, but we did. Uh, Mike Samu Samuelson, my crew chief, was looking out the, the uh, right-hand door uh, on, the, on, the, on the helicopter as we had flown by them, and they were beating the ground with their jackets to, get, to make the ash rise up. And he said, hey, I got some, got some people. So we made a left-hand U-turn <laughs> and they were coming down a logging road on the edge of a cliff and it was probably 25 feet wide. Mm -hmm. And it was about a thousand foot drop off. Something like that? Yeah, 
very similar to that. Yeah. Just almost, almost exact like that. But there were a few trees up in the area that we were in. Mm -hmm. But it was similar to that. The difference is that's wet. You can tell that it yeah. rained there. Yeah, that was days later. Right. So, so you could get yeah. an aircraft down without right. kicking up all the all the dust, mm -hmm. ash. So we uh, we saw the logging road. We knew that we couldn't land um, up it or down it. That we had to go in sideways and do a you know just like an approach yeah to the side because the blades wouldn't rotor blades wouldn't fit if we tried to land on the road. So we ma made a commitment to getting onto the ground from about 200 feet out and just held the aircraft and kind of said, hey, let's both get on the controls and you look out the chin bubble on your side, I'll look out mine and when we see the ground, let's get on it. And so we made the approach and we lost sight of the ground about 75 feet off the ground kept going down until um, we saw about five feet from the ground the skids but we we're doing it real slow and that's that's even worse because coming down slow just more and more ash kicks up yeah so you have to make the commitment and then just trust that it's going to work out mm -hmm. when you when you down the pitch in the aircraft the ash will eventually settle which it did and our rotor blade was less than I'm I'm gonna this won't be a fisherman's story, but it was probably less than five feet from the side of the cliff. That's where there was coming down in front of us. Then we walked up the road, to, uh, got these guys, and they had joined another older gentleman that looked like the one that Cole was with. Mm. And uh, we brought them back to the car. He had a dog too. We put two dogs, three people in, and she said we've got a friend that's hurt injured in the logging camp we're not going back with you unless you'll go after him so i said okay we'll go we'll go take a look we're running low on fuel mm -hmm. we she took us back to where they told us where they were so we knew how to find it mm -hmm. and there was a one-lane bridge there that was too narrow to get my aircraft on so i called hagerman i knew he was still out in the area called him in his 58 said can you come out here and he went out landed on the bridge which was pretty dangerous too because you got a one laid bridge with guardrails on the side wow little bitty aircraft he's a marine <laughs> they don't let him fly big aircraft <laughs> and we, so he he got on the ground they went in and pulled out the guy with the fractured hip and the other wow. one with the burns i think was gone at that point somebody got him I, I don't know how and we flew back in on a low fuel warning light and got on the ground with about 10 minutes of fuel left. Wow. Um, so afterwards, yeah, uh, Sue was so struck, and so it, it was left such an impression on her. What happened with her career afterwards? 38 years after Sue, after we pulled her out and Bruce out, they got married, he died, he actually passed away. Um, she was in a show kind of searching for me. Mm -hmm. So we got together again and I had not seen her and she told me her story. And her story was that she was so impressed with the National Guard, not me, but the, with the National Guard. <laughs> I'm sure you had a piece of that though. <laughs> and, and so she joined the Guard and she became a combat engineer. 
She served two or three tours of duty in Afghanistan. And Afghanistan and I don't think Iraq. Mm. But she became a career soldier. That's amazing. She spent 30 years in the National Guard. Um, flew a flag for me at one of the camps there on, on uh, uh, I think it was September 11th. Wow. And uh, and she just she attributed that yeah. to the to how 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 what she thought of the guard and what we did for mm-hmm. all the people down there. Yeah, I mean it's yeah it's a it's just a testament to what the National Guard does. You know, that's all what our, our mission is. Yeah, is to uh, help people who are going through the worst day of their lives. Oh, you bet. Um, that's pretty that's pretty amazing that she was. You know, ended up doing that, and so the 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 PBS show you're talking about is uh, we'll meet again. Correct. And it was a, um, I think it was Ann Curry who was the the journalist who who did that, and uh, it was uh, reuniting people who uh, had you know met at one point in their lives, split up, but they want to come back. You know, they want to reconnect with this individual. That's correct. And that's how she uh, searched and and found you. She found she found me through Hagerman. She went okay. through the Washington State Archives, mm-hmm. and they had Hagerman's number, not mine. And so she called Jess, and he said, "Yeah, oh, I know I that know, guy. I know that guy." <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, that's yeah, that's how she found me. But she turned out to be a a uh, not just a career soldier, but a good soldier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was she an officer? Like no, she. Or, I think no? she was an E eight. Okay. Oh, that's great. It's yeah. amazing. Um, yeah. Um, so I kind of want to ask about stress that you went through. Like you're, I mean, I can imagine that you're just, at least I would be, <laughs> I don't know. You might've been cool, you know, fly, as a cucumber, you know, with all your experience flying through some, some unfamiliar, but I would, I would be, like super stressed like did did that have any toll on you while you were out there or did that affect you in any way while you're i i think that it was awe and wonderment so we didn't have time to think we didn't i didn't feel any stress no except during approaches Mm -hmm. the the one landing that that stressed me out uh, uh, there's only one other time that I fly on an aircraft that I had anything significant like that that was uh, unknown. You don't know if your engine's going to get yeah. too much ash and it's going to quit while you're going making the approach to the ground. There's so many unknowns about this, and we weren't prepared to to fly under a volcanic cloud. Everybody thought if it blew, it would be a vertical eruption but it was lateral yeah and when it came out i mean it was on the ground and it, you know so we didn't we didn't know what to expect and how far we were able to, would be able to fly up there on day one jim kelly who was a national guard guy and and myself and fred phillips and i think another air crew uh we were in the area where we thought Spirit Lake was, and we called. We there's no water. 
we don't see it. I think I shared this story with you. Mm -hmm. But basically what had happened is that the pyroclastic flow had pushed all the water, and I, I think a volcanite, 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 what are you? Volcanologist. <laughs> I don't know if this is accurate, but pushed all the water out of the lake. The trees are already down, root balls up, and when it when it got up the side of Mount Margaret, mm -hmm. pulled them all back down into the lake, covered it, and ash throughout the day, that would have happened real quick. And then ash throughout the day covered the logs. So when we were there, we had we saw no lake. Really? Nothing. And we knew Harry Truman was oh, yeah. evaporated. So Yeah. I mean he was probably the first one. Because he was like right there. Yeah. Amazing. Um any other stories that you uh that you remember from that from that time? during the rescues that you want to share? Uh, during the rescues, I, I think the only, the stories outside of that would be, I think there's one good one, mm -hmm. and then I'll, I can share a couple more, but sure. Um, Bruce and Sue wanted us to go back in and get one of the, somebody, the army got down there too later on, wanted someone to go back in and get out the bodies of Karen and Terry. We needed a 58 because the mic model was too big to get into the area where even close to the body. So mm -hmm. Jess Hagerman and Bruce Nelson and I got in the uh, got in the 58 and we flew out to the area. Bruce pointed out where they were. We found an area that we could get the aircraft in. We landed and I think you have a picture of of. Bruce and Jess and me afterwards, but we hiked in, got the bodies out, and we found the dog that I was talking about had been pinned by the log where she had three puppies. Oh, wow. And they were all there and they were all alive. So in Bruce's backpack are three little puppies. Oh. And we brought out the other dog and then we had an aircraft come in and mm. uh, drop a, a line down and we hoisted everybody back up in a, in a, uh, yeah, I forget what we called it at the time, but a, a little yo-yo. Yeah, a little yo-yo. <laughs> so afterwards, after, after the, um, after a few days, it started to rain and then started to, to keep the ash, you know, on the ground and you were able to see a lot better. How, how did it, how did the, the, re or not rescues, but maybe if there was any rescues at that time or, um, pulling out or retrieving bodies that you know are, are there. How did, how, did, how did the mission change after the rain came? Well, after two or three days, it rained the following uh, Thursday. And and this happened on a Sunday, right? Pardon me? This happened on a Sunday, right? It started it on happened a Sunday. on a Sunday. And then Thursday. And yeah. it didn't rain till the following Thursday, so we still didn't have, we just were searching for, we found a lot of cars and uh, they were covered with ash and and Reed Blackburn's car was completely covered with ash up to the, with Volvo, I think, covered up to the window. Um, we just found things, but didn't get in to get them out at that point. Just marked where things were. Mm -hmm. Then we started receiving uh, coordinate, coordinates of where people might have been. Mm -hmm. And then we had missions to go out and look in these general areas. We were taking 
the Cowlitz County Sheriff's deputies with us and cadaver dogs. I flew a couple, bunch of those uh, to go out and pull people out. So after the rain, we started seeing color on the ground. Like we found a, up at a place called Trade Dollar Lake, we saw something silver shining on a mission for us to go up and see if there was a Toyota Dolphin motorhome up there. And so we were flying in the area and we noticed something kind of glistening on the ground because of the rain, it cleared the ash off of it. We made an approach, went in and we found a found an individual that had been uh, crushed by a log mm -hmm. uh, at the lake and we found his uh, motorhome but we didn't find the rest of the party. Um, so those were the kind of missions afterwards. We pulled a uh, Russian logger out of a tree in the middle of a mud flow. That uh, one that survived, we found another one that, well, no, he actually passed away from ash inhalation later. We found another one in the top of a tree uh, we, about six weeks after the eruption. So we just had a lot of <clears throat> identification that we needed to do. Yeah. Uh, that was the type of missions that we flew. Okay. Does that about cover it? Like your your story? Is there anything else that we you want to talk about? Uh, the only, you know, the unit received a citation. Yeah. The <clears throat> for uh, um, meritorious service. We got that from the uh, the state of Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, Jess Hagerman, myself, Fred Phillips. Our flight surgeon, Mike Samuelson, and Randy France, and there were seven of us yeah. received an award called the Valley Forge Cross for what we did. That's awesome. That's about it. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's well uh, well earned. On top of all the other medals, on top of all the other medals that you've uh, received in your military career, I'm betting. Couple. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, I mean, I, I really, I thank you for uh, stopping by and, sure. and telling us this story. I mean, it, it's, it, this is exactly what the National Guard does, what, what we stand for. And um, this is definitely a defining moment in our organization. And dare I say the, the, the state and country, right? Like this is an, an event that is significant and you were a part of it. Um, and I, and I, Truly believe that you're a, a true hero for everything that you've done. Yeah, everyone, <laughs> everyone, was. yes, everyone who is yeah. involved in the in the rescue effort. Yeah. And uh, thank you for your service. Sure. And thank you for telling telling us your story. Thanks, it's, Jason. It was great to hear. It was a real honor to interview you. <laughs>